Welcome to The Gradebook, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and this week I'm looking at Puerto Rico and how students from that hurricane-devastated island are on their way to the I-4 corridor. Right here, Tampa is expected to be a destination for many of them. How are we reacting? I'll talk to Hillsborough County Area Superintendent Marcos Murillo about how schools in his area are getting ready for the incoming students. But first, today was the day that the Education Committee of the Florida Constitution Revision Commission held its first session. We were expecting maybe some indications as to where the group might be headed in terms of some of the big issues that they might try to tackle in amending Florida's Constitution. The group meets only every 20 years, and so it's the opportunity for political leaders to try and craft new directions for the Constitution and then for voters to decide. In the past, we've seen the amendments from the Constitution Revision Commission do such things as eliminate the elected education commissioner and change the role of the State Board of Governors. But for those of you who had hopes that this first meeting would give us some sort of indication as to where the committee was headed, you might have walked away disappointed. The first meeting of the committee seemed a lot like a State Board of Education meeting with a lot of presentations from staffers around the state discussing test scores, pre-kindergarten, college readiness rates, and things of that nature, rather than really delving into a lot of the education issues that might appear as an amendment to the Constitution. It left us to sort of pick the tea leaves, listen to hear what was said during the conversation and mostly during the questions that the commissioners had when they were asking the presenters about their presentations. One hint came when Judy Bone, a deputy general counsel for the Department of Education, made her presentation on on K-12 issues, and during the conversation she pointed out the section of the Constitution that refers to superintendents of school districts. In Florida... Um, There are 67 superintendents, 44 are elected, and 23 are appointed. Um, Nationwide, the vast majority of local superintendents are appointed by local school boards. Um, the The five states that rank the highest in achievement appoint theirs, and also the five highest states uh, in population appoint theirs. I think in this aspect, Florida's constitution is unusual. There have been some conversation in the past months as to whether the commission might approach the issue of elected versus appointed superintendents, and this gave some slight indication that it might be a topic that the commission might take up and possibly ask voters to reconsider. Most of the big school districts have appointed superintendents, and the smaller ones, with Pasco County being the largest, have elected superintendents. They have always wanted to keep that political perspective and to not allow it to be something that was just controlled outside the realms of the voters. However, there's some concerns as to whether, you know, 
that elected superintendent can be controlled in the same way that an appointed superintendent can be controlled. So that was one issue that we saw come up during the conversation that might get some attention. Another signal came from Patricia Levesque, one of the commissioners who has worked for a long time for Jeb Bush and his education foundations. After Bone's presentation, Patricia Levesque made a very pointed question. Would you um, mind doing a little bit of research maybe in the word uniform versus the word equitable as far as if those are in different constitutions and if those terms have been um, interpreted, interpreted differently? Because uniform, to me, I went and you know, like Googled the definition and it, it was, um, I don't know where I wrote it, wrote down what that definition was when I Googled it, but it was something like um, not changing the same, something like that, but yet um, equitable meant fair. And I want, I'm just raising the issue. I'd love to know if there's a little bit more nuance to the, to a legal difference between uniform and equitable. And so she wanted to know if the staff could do more research on those two words and how they might be used in the Constitution. We know that this is a possible hint into some of the very key language of the Constitution because it states very clearly that Florida is supposed to have a uniform, efficient, safe, secure, and high-quality system of free public schools. And that was the basis that was used in the 2006 Holmes v. Bush case that struck down one of the key voucher programs that the state had tried to set up at that time. So if they're looking at possibly amending that language, it could lead to some other major changes because a lot of conversation lately has been about whether the school systems that we have here, charter schools and VPK programs and all sorts of other aspects of what has become to be known as the full public school system is uniform or if it's a variety of systems under one umbrella, it's been the source of lawsuits, it's been the source of lots of hand-wringing, and so that was a very key hint as to where the commission might be headed, perhaps the key hint of the entire short committee meeting, which was very poorly attended, by the way, and um, didn't really have any public participation at all. In another part of the conversation, Marva Johnson was asking some very interesting questions relating to voluntary pre-kindergarten, which came to the state via a citizen's amendment in 2002. As many people have been sort of wondering whether the state can afford that program, she asked the question of whether the state can afford to do more with the program. She hinted that they needed to do more research on whether We needed to extend the program down from four-year-olds to two-year-olds, which could create a whole new set of requirements within the Constitution mandating how school systems and even private schools participate in that pre-kindergarten program and getting children ready through early education. It was pointed out through other parts of that VPK conversation that the percentage of public schools participating as a part of the whole is just 20%. Most of the participating schools are private, which has always been a question of whether that is the, the right balance. And so there were some suggestions, perhaps, that there may be a look at VPK and the pre-kindergarten amendment to the Constitution and whether it needs to be changed as well. Even at the end of the three-hour conversation, there didn't seem to be many more 
hints than that. There was much more not said than said. There was some speculation by observers that the commissioners don't want to drop the ball on the biggest issues too soon so that they don't raise too many objections and and face a fight before they can even get their proposals off the launch pad and moving toward voter consideration, much less approval. So there are going to be more meetings of this nature, of this committee, and we'll have to just wait and see where they head. One thing that um, Deputy General Counsel Judy Bone did tell the commissioners was to be sure that whatever they do, they stay focused on things that they really think need to be in the Constitution and not things that could be handled better legislatively. We would suggest to clearly define the pro- proposal that the pro- excuse me, to clearly define the problem the proposal is designed to solve. Um, and then it is suggested to determine whether the problem itself requires a constitutional change rather than a statutory solution. And I would tell you when you look at some of the changes in the articles and how difficult it is to get something in the Constitution, uh, out of the Constitution once it's, once it's in, you must consider any sort of proposals that you will make as permanent or semi-permanent. Um, and consider whether or not whatever the problem is can be more effectively addressed by the legislation. And then I would suggest you analyze the cost and benefits. And finally, if there are any unintended consequences and how best to avoid those. If anyone has any question about what it means to have something become a permanent part of the Constitution, whether you like it or not, you need to look no further than the class size amendment of 2002. Lawmakers have tried and failed several times to remove or completely neutralize portions of that voter initiative because they think that it's either too too complicated, too strict, or too expensive to handle. And yet, it just stays there. So, once again, the Florida Constitution Revision Commission Education Committee has a long way to go to get to the finish line. We know there are some issues out there that people are watching and expecting to come up, mostly with with relationship to educational choice and funding, things such as money following students into charter schools and, and maybe possibly getting rid of the Blaine Amendment so that way they can move money into religious institutions that run schools a little more freely. We'll be watching, and the next meeting has yet to be scheduled. Now I want to turn to my interview with Marcos Murillo, the area superintendent of Hillsborough County Schools, who's dealing with the expected influx of students from the islands in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Let's take a listen. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Um, I'm really glad to have you here and to share your expertise. <laughs> yes, sir. So tell me a little bit about how you are in Hillsborough County dealing with the advent of students from Puerto Rico coming here. This is probably one of the bigger areas where students will come. Absolutely. Um, mainly here in the area, too, in the town and country area, we're expecting um you know, students coming from Puerto Rico, as you stated in the question, mainly we're preparing as, a, as an area with the principals. Communication, of course, started with me um, sharing with them about the situation and how to how to prepare, mainly understanding that it's not only the amount of students that, are, that might, might be coming, but also the emotional state that they might be in need and also how to start looking as soon as they come in 
to look at their academic needs. That at the, at the moment they're in our schools, we start providing them their academics, the instruction at the level that they need, and and also looking at them getting getting to the knowledge of the students, seeing exactly where they are, if there's any emotional concerns. At the same time, having our staff understanding the parents and, and the needs of the parents understanding their situation. So we are little by little at this time. We haven't received a, a large number. Um, they're trickling in little by little, um, but we're expecting a little bit more. Looking at the news right now that the airport is on a 24-hour just regular um function at this moment seven to seven days of the week so we're expecting now the flow to increase um i can't say how many they're expected we're just getting ready with open arms um the communication from the principals with the teacher as well has been very positive and everyone has been very receptive um just just to take care of them we're really taking care of them in this area let me ask you when students come from puerto rico do they speak a lot of English, will they have a lot of translation problems in addition to transition problems? That could be depending on where they they held their education, and and that's just a fact. Mainly, of course, we're expecting for them to be more on the ELL program, the English language learners, um, in the beginning part of it, and we are we will analyze the amount of students so we can provide the supports needed. Um, teachers are are aware, um, and we have our supports at the schools right now, and if we need to increase the supports if needed, of course, we'll be in contact with the district and the, and the right personnel so we can provide those supports. Now, well, what kind of supports? A- what kind of supports do you need to have for students who are coming from this kind of situation? I, it doesn't strike me that it's necessarily the same as, say, when Katrina happened and people were coming from New, New Orleans. Orleans. Yes, an example: we if we have paraprofessional, ELL paraprofessionals to assist, depending on the amount, you know, the transition to be in the classes, the the ELL resource classes, looking at the number of kids that might be increased per classroom, so also how much we need to facilitate, if we need to increase the number of paraprofessionals to support them with their need when it comes to the language, or do we need more ELL teachers in depending on the schools? So those are the things that mainly we'll be working on because, of course, we provide as much as we can academically and just seeing how much of the English they know or how much we need to, to support them from the moment they get here. Because at the same time, not only them, we need to increase the communication, of course, in the Spanish language with, with the families, depending also how much they will know of the English language when, when they, they when they actually come to our school. So it, it's a team effort of full knowledge, not only of the student, but the situation and the families that we are ready to, to, to work with and, and move forward. But mainly that ELL support to understand that at the moment they get here, we provide the, the the instruction that they need so they can acclimate and transition as quickly as they possibly can. Now, did I understand correctly that you yourself are from Puerto Rico at one point? Yes, sir. I I was born in Puerto Rico, and I had a three-year stint here in Florida when I was uh, from the age six to nine. Then I went back home all the way to I finished college, uh, my bachelor's, and I came here at the age of 24, and then I started as a substitute teacher in 1999. Yes, sir. So then what do you see from your own personal experience that students from Puerto Rico who come here might might have to 
come to grips with uh, and how do the schools help them? Well, it's going to be, it's a difficult transition. Not, not only because of the situation, the situation with the hurricane might add, um, to them coming to try to adapt to it. It's just the education and the system is completely different. Um, and, and just to adapt at what we will provide for them. It's just a new place. From my experience coming here, just a new place as being an educator back, back in Puerto Rico for a short time and coming here, just acclimating myself to the system and what is needed. That's, it's just different being around the environment and their surroundings. That, that piece right there, it, it will take maybe a while. Some, for some students might take more than others, just like regular people when they adapt to a new, new place, new situation. So that's when we, the adults and the educators in our schools, need, need to be prepared on how to actually facilitate and make them feel as comfortable as they possibly, uh, as possible, as possible that we can make them feel that comfortable in our schools. Because that transition, I cannot say for all, but just in general, I imagine it, it's, it will not be the easiest for them. What is the biggest difference you would see between a school here and a school th- there? It's pretty much it, it, it's it is it's it is different. Um, the resources, I will tell you the truth. That's just from my experience when I was in school. But at the same time, the resources here, we can provide a lot more resources that what what maybe they're, they're accustomed to. Um, there's, you know, the, the structure in, in the academics mainly, it, it will get them to transition a lot quicker. Why? Because our teachers are, are prepared, not only prepared for this situation, it's just the way we prepare our teachers to actually provide the instruction and meet the academic needs of the students. It's, it's, it's difficult, um, just to right now share because I haven't been part of the system in so many years since, again, 99. Um, but I can't imagine, I can say that here we are absolutely more, more prepared to educate the students and provide again for their academic needs than what more likely they would be encountering Puerto Rico at this time. For students who live here now, who are seeing what could be a large number of children coming in from Puerto Rico, or I guess from the Virgin Islands as well, do, absolutely. do you have any sort of recommendations for how they should React or how should they should respond beyond just being friendly and nice? No, that's a conversation again that started with the principals and by them reaching to the teachers and the staff. That includes the guidance counselors. That includes just if they have any questions. Um, usually, there there are structures, and every teacher has their own structures in the classroom when they receive new students. But because we don't know to the extent of how many students will be received in some specific classrooms more than others, like more specific schools more than others, um, the conversation starts with the, with the principal and the leader of the school. So we actually had that conversation when we had it, um, our last area meeting between, you know, my myself, the area office, and the principals, and just to plan and understand the way we're going to be communicating um, the situation to everyone, if anyone has questions, but also monitoring um, not only the, 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 the students and the families that are coming here, but also the the staff that have families in Puerto Rico and how actually to monitor and provide support if they need because it's been a little bit difficult to communicate back home and, and I can attest to that because it's, I have a lot of families still um, 
back back in the island, and, and it's been difficult. So we're not only monitoring the incoming families, but we're monitoring our 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 staff and 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 the the, the people in our schools that really would need support, um, even with the emotional any changes that happen. All those conversations have been had with the principals, myself, and they're all monitoring, and we're consistently communicating about it. And at this time, everything has been normal. I can't say that we have encountered any more changes since it happened um, two weeks ago to what we have now. But we are being we are being proactive. We're being proactive in the most positive way to provide them a very positive experience. Well, I really appreciate you talking with me about this. This is a situation where Florida is a, a receiver as well as experiencing hurricanes of its own. So it's a kind of interesting balancing act that everybody here has to play. Yes. And, and, and the best thing that we can do is being very consistent in the communication, um, monitor um, daily if there are any major changes um, so we can act as a team to how, again, provide the best and the most positive academic and not only academic, but make them feel comfortable, make them feel at home. So the experience, again, it's positive in nature and the transition um, smoothly get, gets an effect for them. Well, thanks again for talking with me. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's the end of our podcast. If you want to participate in these or any other conversations on Florida education issues, please visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. For the latest breaking news on Florida education matters, please come to our blog, tampabay.com gradebook. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and thanks again for listening.